0: Chapter twenty eight of Unknown to History by Charlotte Mary Young. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tanika, Madison, Alabama. Hunting Down the Deer Humphrey had been sworn in of the service of the Queen and had been put in charge of the guard mustered at Chartley for about ten days, during which he seldom saw Cicely and wondered much not to have heard from home when a stag-hunt was arranged to take place at the neighbouring park of Tickhill, or Ticksall, belonging to Sir Walter Ashton. The chase always invigorated Queen Mary, and she came down in cheerful spirits, with Cicely and Mary Seaton as her attendants, and with the two secretaries, now and curl, heading the other attendants. "'Now,' she said to Cicely, "'shall I see this swain, or this brother of thine, who hath done us such good service? And I promise you—' There will be more in my greeting than will meet Sir Amias's ear, but to Cicely's disappointment, Humphrey was not among the horsemen mustered at the door to attend and guard the queen. My little Maisai is seeking for her brother," said Mary as Sir Amias advanced to assist her to her horse. "He hath another charge which will keep him at home," replied Paulet, somewhat gruffly, and they rode on. It was a beautiful day in early August; the trees in full foliage the fields seen here and there through them, assuming their amber harvest tints, the twin spires of Lichfield rising in the distance, the park and forest ground through which the little hunting party rode, rich with purple heather, illuminated here and there with a bright yellow spike or star, and the rapid motion of her brisk palfrey animated the Queen. She began to hope that Humphrey had, after all, brought a false alarm, and that either he had been mistaken— or that Langston was deceiving the council itself, and though Sir Amias Paulet's close proximity held her silent, those who knew her best, saw that her indomitably buoyant spirits were rising, and she hummed to herself the refrain of a gay French hunting-song, with the more zest, perhaps, than her warder held himself trebly upright, stiff and solemn under it, as one who thought such lively tunes equally unbefitting a lady, a queen, and a captive. So at least Sis imagined as she watched them, little guessing that there might be deeper reasons of compassion, and something like compunction to add to the gravity of the old knight's face. As they came in sight of the gate of Tickfield Park, they became aware of the company whose steel caps and shouldered arquebuses did not look like those of huntsmen. Mary bounded in her saddle, she looked round at her little suite with a glance of exultation in her eye, which said as plainly as words, my brave friends, the hour has come, and she quickened her steed, expecting no doubt that she might have to outride Sir Amias in order to join them. One gentleman came forward from the rest. He held a parchment in his hand, and as soon as he was alongside of the Queen, thus read, "'Mary, late Queen of Scots and Queen Dowager of France, I, Thomas George, attain thee of high treason.' and of compassing the life of our most gracious, Majesty, Queen Elizabeth, in company with Anthony Babington, John Ballard, Chidoc Tichborne, Robert Barnwell, and others. Mary held up her hands, raised her eyes to heaven, and a protest was on her lips, but George cut it short with, "It skills not denying it, madam. The proofs are in our hands. I have orders to conduct you to Tickhill, while seals are put on your effects.' That there may be proofs of your own making, said the Queen with dignity. I have experience of that mode of judgment. So, Sir Amias Paulet, the chase you lured me to was truly of a poor hunted doe, whom you think you have run down at last. A worthy chase indeed, and of long continuance. I do but obey my orders, madam, said Paulet, gloomily. Oh aye, and so did the sleuth hound, said Mary. "'Your Grace must be pleased to ride on with me,' said Mr. Georges, laying his hand on her bridle. "'What are you doing with those gentlemen?' cried Mary, sharply reining in her horse, as she saw now and Curl surrounded by the armed men. "'They will be dealt with after Her Majesty's pleasure,' returned Paulet. Mary dropped her rein and threw up her hands with a gesture of despair, but as Georges was leading her away, she turned on her saddle, raised her voice to call out, Farewell, my true and faithful servants. Betide was me. Your mistress will remember you in her prayers. Curl, we will take care of your wife.' And she waved her hand to them as they were made, with a strong guard, to ride off in the direction of Lichfield, All the way to Tickhill, whither she was conducted with George and Paulet on either side of her horse, Cis could hear her pleading for consideration for poor Barbara Curl, For whose sake she forgot her own dignity and became a supplicant. Sir Walter Ashton, a dull, heavy looking country gentleman of burly form and ruddy countenance, stood at his door, and somewhat clownishly offered his services to hand her from her horse. She submitted passively till she had reached the upper chamber which had been prepared for her, and there, turning on the three gentlemen, demanded the meaning of this treatment. "'You will know soon, madam,' said Paulette. "'I am sorry that thus it should be.' "'Thus?' repeated Mary scornfully. "'What means this?' "'It means, madam,' said Georges, "'a ruder man of less feeling even than Paulette, "'that your practices with recusants and seminary priests have been detected. "'The traitors are in the counter, "'and will shortly be brought to judgment for the evil purposes "'which have been frustrated by the mercy of heaven.' "'It is well if treason against my good sister's person had been detected and frustrated,' said Mary. "'But how doth that concern me?' "'That, madam, the papers at Chartley will show,' returned Georges. "'Meantime, you will remain here till Her Majesty's pleasure be known.' "'Where, then, are my women and my servants?' inquired the Queen. "'Your grace will be attended by the servants of Sir Walter Ashton.' "'Gentlemen, this is not seemly.' said Mary, the colour coming hotly to her face,—'I know it is not the will of my cousin, the Queen of England, that I should remain here without any woman to attend me, nor any change of garments. You are exceeding your commission, and she shall hear of it.' Sir Amias Paulet here laid his hand on George's arm, and after exchanging a few words with him, said,—'Madam, this young lady, Mistress Talbot, being simple and of a loyal house, may remain with you for the present. For the rest, sales are put on all your effects at Chartley, and nothing can be removed from thence. But what is needful will be supplied by my lady Ashton. I bid your grace farewell, craving your pardon for what may have been hasty in this. Mary stood in the centre of the floor, full of her own peculiar injured dignity, not answering, but making a low ironical reverence. Mary Seaton fell on her knees, clinging to the queen's dress, and declaring that while she lived she would not leave her mistress. Endure this also, Mamie, said the queen in French. Give them no excuse for using violence. They would not scruple. And as a demonstration to hinder French-speaking was made by the gentleman. Fear not for me. I shall not be alone. I understand your grace, and obey, said Mary Seaton, rising with a certain bitterness in her tone which made mary say ah i must jealousy Martha the fondest affection remember it is their choice not mine my seaton friend of my youth bear my loving greetings to all and take care of poor barbara madam there must be no private messages said paulet i send no messages save what you yourself may hear sir replied the queen my greetings to my faithful servants and my entreaty that all care and tenderness may be shown to Mrs. Curl.' "'I will bear them, madam,' said the knight, "'and so I commend you to God's keeping, praying that he may send you repentance. Believe me, madam, I am sorry that this has been put upon me.' To this Mary only replied by a gesture of dismissal. The three gentlemen drew back, a key grated in the lock, and the mother and daughter were left alone. To Cicely it was a terrible hopeless sound, and even to her mother it was a lower depth of wretchedness. She had been practically a captive for nearly twenty years. She had been insulted, watched, guarded, coerced, but never in this manner locked up before. She clasped her hands together, dropped on her knees at the table that stood by her, and hid her face. So she continued till she was roused by the sound of Cicely's sobs. Frightened and oppressed, and new to all terror and sorrow, the girl had followed her example in kneeling, but the very attempt to pray brought on a fit of weeping, and the endeavour to restrain what might disturb the queen only rendered the sobs more choking and strangling, till at last Mary heard, and coming towards her, sat down on the floor, gathered her into her arms, and kissing her forehead, said, "'Poor Birney! And did she weep for her mother? Have the sorrows of her house come on her?' oh mother i could not help it i meant to have comforted you said cicely between sobs and so are there my child unwittingly they have left me that which was most precious to me there was consolation in the fondness of the loving embrace at least to such sorrows as those of the maiden and queen mary had an inalienable power of charming the will and affections of those in contact with her so that insensibly there came into cicely's heart a sense that, so far from weeping, she should rejoice at being the one creature left to console her mother. And, she said, by and by, looking up with a smile, they must go to the bottom of the old well to find anything. Hush, lassie, never speak above thy breath in a prison till thou knowest whether walls have ears. And, apropos, let us examine what sort of a prison they have given us this time. So saying, Mary rose, and, leaning on her daughter's arm, proceeded to explore her new abode. Like her apartment at the lodge, it was at the top of the house, a fashion not uncommon, when it was desirable to make the lower regions defensible. But whereas she had always hitherto been placed in the castles of the highest nobility, she was now in that of a country knight of no great wealth or refinement, and, moreover, taken by surprise. So the plenishing was of the simplest— the walls were covered with tapestry so faded that the pattern could hardly be detected. The hearth yawned dark and dull, and by it stood one chair with a moth-eaten cushion. A heavy oaken table and two forms were in the middle of the room, and there was the dreary, fusty smell of want of habitation. The Queen, whose instincts for fresh air were always a distress to her ladies, sprang to the mullioned window, but the heavy lattice defied all her efforts. "'Let us see the rest of our dominions,' she said, turning to a door, which led to a still more gloomy bedroom, where the only articles of furniture were a great carved bed, with curtains of some undefined dark colour, and an oaken chest. The window was a mere slit, and even more impracticable than that of the outer room. However, this did not seem to horrify Mary so much as it did her daughter. "'They cannot mean to keep us here long,' she said. "'Perhaps only for the day,' while they make their search—their unsuccessful search—thanks to—we know whom, little one. "'I hope so. How could we sleep there?' said Cicely, looking with a shudder at the bed. "'Tush! I have seen worse in Scotland, Mignon. Ay, and when I was welcomed as a liege lady, not as a captive, I have slept in a box like a coffin with one side open, and I have likewise slept on a plaidie on the bra purple blossoms of freshly pulled heather.' "'Nay, the very thought makes this chamber doubly mouldy and stifling. "'Let the old knight beware. "'If he opens not his window, I shall break it. "'Soft, here he comes.' "'Sir Walter Ashton appeared, louting low, looking half-dogged, half-sheepish, "'and escorting two heavy-footed, blue-coated serving-men, "'who proceeded to lay the cloth, "'which at least had the merit of being perfectly clean and white.' two more brought in covered silver dishes, one of which contained a Yorkshire pudding, the other a piece of roast beef, apparently calculated to satisfy five hungry men. A flagon of sack, a tankard of ale, a dish of apples, and a large loaf of bread completed the meal, at which the Queen in Sicily, accustomed daily to a first table of sixteen dishes, and a second of nine, compounded by her Grace's own French cooks and pantlers, Looked with a certain amused dismay, as Sir Walter, standing by the table, produced a dagger from a sheath at his belt, and took up with it first a mouthful of the pudding, then cut off a corner of the beef, finished off some of the bread, and having swallowed these as well as a draught of each of the liquors, said, "Good and sound meat, not tampered with, as I hereby testify. You take us suddenly, madam, but I thank heaven none ever found us unprovided. Will it please you to fall to?" "'Your woman can eat after you.' "'Mary's courtesy was unfailing, "'and though she felt all a Frenchwoman's disgust "'at the roast beef of old England, she said, "'We are too close companions not to eat together, "'and I fear she will be the best trencher comrade for, sir. "'I am a woman sick and sorrowful, "'and have little stomach for meat.' "'As Sir Walter carved a huge red piece from the ribs, "'she could not help shrinking back from it, "'so that he said, with some affront, "'You need not be queasy, madam. It was caught from a home-fed bullock, only killed three days since, and as prime a beast as any in Stafford.' "'Ah, yes, sir. It is not the fault of the beef, but of my feebleness. Mistress Talbot would do it reason. But I, methinks I could eat better were the windows opened.' But Sir Walter replied that these windows were not of the new-fangled sort made to open—' that honest men might give rooms and foolish maids prate therefrom. So there was no hope in that direction. He really seemed to be less ungracious than utterly clownish, dull, and untaught, and extremely shy and embarrassed with his prisoner. Cicely poured out some wine, and persuaded her to dip some bread in, which, with an apple, was all she could taste. However, the fare, though less nicely served than by good Mrs. Susan, was not so alien to Cicely— and she was of an age and constitution to be made hungry by anxiety and trouble, so that, encouraged by the Queen whenever she would have desisted, she ended by demolishing a reasonable amount. Sir Walter stood all the time, looking on moodily and stolidly with his cap in his hand. The Queen tried to talk to him, and made inquiries of him, but he had probably steeled himself to her blandishments, for nothing but gruff monosyllables could be extracted from him. "'except when he finally asked what she would be pleased to have for supper. "'My own cook and pantler have hitherto provided for me. "'They would save your household the charge, sir,' said Mary, "'and I would be at charges for them.' "'Madam, I can bear the charge in the Queen's service. "'Your black guard are under ward, and if not, "'no French jackanapes shall ever brew his messes in my kitchen. "'Command honest English fare, madam, "'and if it be within my compass you shall have it.' No one shall be stinted in Walter Ashton's house, but I'll not away with any of your outlandish kickshaws. Come, what say you to eggs and bacon, madam?' "'As you will, sir,' replied Mary listlessly, and Sir Walter, opening the door, shouted to his serving-man, who speedily removed the meal, he going last and making his clumsy reverence at the door, which he locked behind him. "'Sir,' said Mary, "'I descend. I have had the statesman, the earl, the courtly knight, the pedantic huguenot for my warders. Now I am come to the clown. Soon it will be the dungeon and the headsman. "'Oh, dear, madam mother, speak not thus!' cried Cicely. "'Remember, they can find nothing against you.' "'They can make what they cannot find, my poor child. If they thirst for my blood, it will cost them little to forge a plea. Ah, lassie, there have been times when nothing but my cousin Elizabeth's conscience, or her pity— stood between me and doom. If she be brought to think that I have come past her death, why, then, there is naught for it but to lay my head on the same pillow as Norfolk and Moor and Holy Fisher, and many other beside. Well, be it so, I shall die a martyr for the Holy Church, and thus may I atone by God's mercy for my many sins. Yea, I offer myself a sacrifice, she said, folding her hands and looking upward with a light on her face or do thou accept it, and let my sufferings purge away my many misdeeds, and render it a pure and acceptable offering unto thee? Child, child, she added, turning to Sicily, what that thou wert of my faith, then couldst thou pray for me? O oh, mother, mother, I can do that. I do pray for thee. And, hand in hand, with tears often rising, they knelt, While Mary repeated in broken verse the misery. End of chapter twenty eight. Recording by Tanika, Madison, Alabama.